Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Right along with Laura Reynolds as she talks to the auto designers, creators, and makers about the automobiles we love as we go driving in heels. It's driving in heels. I'm Laura Reynolds, your host. And on this week's podcast, I talk directly to Ford Motor Company parts and service operations manager, Dallas region, Jonathan Cuff. He says Texas Ford dealers can adopt a U.S. Army soldier and help them transition to civilian work. Then I speak with traffic research group leader, AAA Foundation, Dr. Bill Ory, and Brian Teft, as they say new research shows people are getting back to driving, but some of their bad habits have caused an increase in fatality accidents. So let's get started with Ford Motor Company Parts and Service Operations Manager, Dallas Region, Jonathan Cuff. Well, Jonathan, I am just so excited about this new program that Ford has uh, developed for our military people. Go ahead and tell us about it. Well, Laura, hey, um, you know, with uh, with all the things going on in trades in the workforce, uh, Ford and other auto manufacturers are in desperate need for service technicians to work at our dealerships. Uh, roughly three years ago, two retired generals approached one of our most influential dealers here in the Dallas area and served up a really terrific plan to help our transitioning army soldiers who are transitioning from the service into the civilian workforce and how they could potentially fill this need. Um, they furthermore reinforced the fact that uh, soldiers while in the military often get exposed to a lot of mechanical areas of training and work. Uh, some soldiers operate as wheeled vehicle mechanics or others work on other mechanical systems. So it really creates a natural fit to explore whether or not it's a, uh, this is the career aspiration for these uh, men and women as they uh, get discharged from the service. Um, the dealer also felt like this was our opportunity to kind of honor soldiers' service to our country and that the best way to do that is to create opportunities for them post their military career. So in essence, you know, what we do with this program We've got a 16-week train, accelerated training program located at Central Texas College. And these are for those transitioning service members. So once the service member knows that they're getting ready to be discharged from the Army, um, they are eligible to participate in what the Army calls career skills program. And the Ford Technicians of Tomorrow is a career skills program. So um, in a nutshell, it gives the soldier four Ford certifications, which are industry recognized credentials. Uh, we give them a pretty comprehensive training plan. Uh, we partner them up with a dealer who elects to sponsor them into the program, cover the cost of tuition. And they do so with the intent of hiring the soldier upon their discharge. So um, 
it's great because we offer the soldier training certifications, a job, and then through a partnership with Texas Workforce, um, Workforce comes in and buys the soldier a, a new Ford technician rotunda starter toolkit. So it gives them the tools that they need to perform their job. So it's a win, 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 a win for the soldier, a win for the for Ford, and a win for the state of Texas for that matter. So we love it. And this is only going on in Texas, right? Um, currently, it is right now in Texas. Um, you know, we're looking for other opportunities to expand into other parts of the country. Uh, there have been other career skills programs that have been looked at, but uh, through this relationship and through a lot of determination and hard work, we've been able to get it off the ground here at, uh, at Fort Hood in, in Colleen, Texas. So we're really excited with the early prospects of a long and fruitful relationship for both the Army and Ford Motor Company, for that matter. Well, I love how you guys have thought of, to me, it almost feels like a family. You're welcome, welcoming the soldiers after they're discharged. You're saying, you know, here's a way to put your skills you already have to use and to make sure that there's no hindrance in getting this done. We've got a dealer sponsoring you and a toolkit for you. Yeah, yeah. It's Many of our dealers are family owned and operated. So it really lends itself to this environment. You know, we, we talk about it for treating customers like family, but to do that and to be able to do that, we've really got to make sure that we treat our employees in, in similar fashion. So we th think through the support structure and the networks our dealers have, they can open up their dealerships to these men and women and their collective families because we recognize how important the soldier's family is to a successful transition into that post-military life. So. We think we're really uh, well positioned to help deliver that to these soldiers. So really excited for that. So if a soldier is listening right now, or maybe his family is listening right now, uh, what does he do first to try to get into this program? Well, what I'd encourage them to do is, is reach out to Soldiers for Life program. Uh, that is a recognized program on base that really works and devotes itself to helping soldiers and their families through their life changes like a transition into the civilian workforce. Um, explore all the various career skills programs out there because many take cases, there's a number of terrific opportunities available to them. Um, if there's interest in uh, coming into the Ford program, uh, we have a on-base recruiter at uh, Fort Hood, is uh, retired Command Sergeant Major Anthony Waller is the gentleman's name. Um, I can provide you with uh, Anthony's contact information. Unfortunately, I don't have it with me right now, but I can just send it over to you so that you've got it and we can provide it to any interested soldiers because we'd like to share with them, you know, what our plans are and to see whether or not it may fit into their, uh, into their plans as well. Now, our program is initially at Fort Hood, but right now we're exploring integrating four additional bases, which is going to make it a lot easier to expand the reach for us. And we're currently looking at Fort Sill, Fort Bliss, Fort Polk, as well as Joint Air Force Base in Antonio. So likely those additional bases will come online at the fourth quarter for placement, potentially in our first cohort of 2022. So we think there's a lot of opportunity for those candidates that possess these skills and have interest in our, in our side of the business. Yeah, I remember doing an interview, I want to say, gosh, maybe two plus years ago about how the need for technicians is so great now. And this just seems like, I mean, like a no brainer. 
I'm thinking that a lot of the guys uh, and girls coming, you know, that are being discharged have a lot of these skills, you know, already in their brains. Yeah, they do. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of makeup of the army and the military for that matter, uh, with a lot of folks that have have that those fundamental skills or have interest in those areas as well, too. Because sometimes we, we have applicants that don't have a lot of experience, but maybe like to tinker with their hands and, and can learn. Um, we've got examples with other CSPs that uh, they brought in candidates. Uh, I think one case, it was a ship uh, uh, welding program, but they took an operating room technician and that uh, was a, a female who did a fantastic job and she was the best in her class and she is the best uh, uh, ship welder in that, in that program. So we're keeping our options open because we need uh, technicians and like you had indicated up front, uh, there is an industry-wide shortage. So part of that is driven by the fact that the, there's been terrific growth across the automotive industry, which creates more demand for service work. Uh, but we're also seeing that uh, a lot of our employees are getting older. So with that, we're losing a lot to retirement and we're just not replenishing the pipeline fast enough uh, to go ahead and to account for that. So on a national basis, every year we're about, there's a need for about 70,000 automotive service technicians across the entire industry. And uh, for us here for Ford in the state of Texas, um, we do a terrific job. We're really fortunate and blessed to have a, a, an outstanding truck like the F-150. So there's a lot of demand for our products across the state. So we just have not kept up with the demand that we've got in our shops. So that's really what creates this opportunity that uh, we're looking for a few good men and women to, uh, to join the Ford team and be able to, uh, to um, kind of embark on a terrific career because Let's face it, if you think about it, the skills that you can learn in the CSP are, are those that will carry with you forever. And um, you know, it's a opportunity to earn a solid income for you and your family. And then also to know that you're, it's a pretty much industry recession-proof tech job because when times are good, business is running, we need technicians. When uh, the economy's poor, maybe people aren't buying vehicles. Well, guess what? They're fixing their vehicles. So guess what? We need technicians. So it's a very, very important uh, role to play and we need, uh, we need competent, capable, motivated people to fill those roles and to, to join our team. Now you said it's an accelerated program that Ford runs for these people. So can you tell us what it's yep. like once you're involved in the program? Yes, please. Um, so what, it, what it's like is that the soldier comes on board and spends the first couple of weeks of the training uh, reinforcing fundamentals of the industry. And that means automotive safety, shop safety. We want to make sure that there's a base level of, of acumen across the, uh, the soldiers. Uh, after two weeks, we ship them out to their sponsoring dealer so they can start the transition early. And uh, with that first week, they're getting to know their future coworkers and employer. So we think that that's kind of helps gets the jump on transition and starts to demystify that because you know, what I've heard from a lot of soldiers, it's a pretty scary time for them and their families. You know, you just don't know what's on the other side of things uh, relative to the transition in the civilian world. So if we can get started on helping you get to know, and then uh, what we want the soldier to do is go out and shadow all these different employees with that work within the dealership, A, to get to know them, but also to get exposed to the work that they do 
and how important that work is when they join the dealership as a technician so that they can understand you know, how important a service writer is or a parts counter person is or a warranty administrator is because these are all folks that they're gonna have to work with so very closely in their new role. Um, after that week of, of work within the dealership, the soldier returns back to base then we get started on the foundation of our program, which is electrical. And let's face it, in today's vehicles, uh, there's so many electronics, whether it's those infotainment systems or all the bells and whistles that many uh, modern era vehicles have. Well, we need somebody who understands electrical and electronics to be able to fix that. And as you know as well, our industry is facing big market shift in propulsion with battery electric vehicles coming on board. So realistically, the future is electric uh, when it comes down to that. So it's so important for us to get these folks started uh, on that. But they'll work that three weeks in class and earn their first certification and then ship back to that sponsoring dealer to work with them for a second week. Uh, during that second week, they're gonna partner up with, with those men and women that work in the store and do a lot of assignments that is focused on that electrical side of the business because we think that reinforcing it with practical hands-on uh, application helps the learning occur and it helps to kind of allow people to see kind of how this really plays out from theory into practice. So, so basically every three weeks afterwards, the soldier is pivoting back and forth between classroom and the dealership to uh, to gain their skills, to further the, the road down towards uh, the finish line, which is uh, being discharged and entering the civilian workforce. So it's a, it's, there's a lot packed into those 16 weeks, but we think we've got the right mix of um, classroom training alongside the, uh, the work and dealership that helps to pay off in the, in the end. Well, I like how you said that it takes some of the stress and worry from them, you know, that they're being discharged, what do I do next? But not only that, it allows them to put down roots probably for one of the first times too. Yeah, it does. Um, I've got an, um, an example of a soldier that transitioned from Fort Hood up to Loveland, Texas. And uh, the, our dealership up there is a really fantastic dealer, uh, very military friendly and centric the epitome of the family, family owned operated dealer. Well, this soldier came in and, and you know, connected with the service manager, shop foreman, um, got to know the dealer principal. And before the program was up, had already made plans on a house uh, in the local community. Um, they had brought their family out to investigate the local areas. So, you know, the sooner they can go ahead and arrive at a decision that makes sense for the family and they can envision themselves being a part of that family of the dealership and that community, it really makes the transition work well compared to kind of the unknowns and the fear of the unknowns. So best to do that before the soldiers discharge and it allows us to be able to kind of get a jump on that transition so that once they're discharged, they've got their tools, they're ready to go to work and, and continue their your building of their acumen because it takes time to become a full-fledged flat rate technician. Um, you know, we're not under any beliefs that it's going to happen open overnight, but the sooner we can kind of partner them up with key mentors within the shop 
and have a structured approach to this, we think we've got the better chances to succeed for both the dealer and the, and the soldier and their families. Oh, I just love that story you just told. That just that's heartwarming to me that you know we're doing something to help once they've helped serve our country. Yeah, it makes sense to me because you know if you think about ways to serve those who have served us, and what better of a way to do it than to help them and, and their families kind of get them launched on a career. And for us, selfishly, we love the fact that we're we're bringing in these uh, highly qualified people into our dealership and want to build on their, their core competencies so that we've got a really solid uh, talent pool for our repair shop because our customer experience, it, the technicians at the core of the customer experience because you know when something unfortunately happens, stuff breaks on automobiles, but it's incumbent upon us to be able to go through and help resolve those quick and without you know with the least intrusion and that qualified certified Ford technician it starts with their ability to fix it right quickly so that we can get that vehicle back to the, uh, to the customer and down the road. Now, does this program run all year long? I mean, do you take, cause I know you said it's a 16 week course. So do you do 16 week followed by 16 week followed by 16 week? That's correct. Yeah. We, we sequence cohorts. Um, right now we're embarking on our fourth cohort to start up in September and as we embark into 2022, uh, what we're gonna start to see with bringing on those additional four bases, we're hopeful that the volume of qualified candidates goes up because really the demand across our dealer base is such that they'll take um, any uh, and all of our soldiers that have that interest and really want to join their team. You know, it's so important that the soldier comes in, into this program with a desire to join the automotive industry and if they're able, and if they're willing to do that, then on the other hand, you've got a dealer that's willing to invest in them and, and bring them through the pipeline. And then with that, provide them a job. So um, again, it's just such an important part of our, of our, what, what's going to make our, our dealerships successful in the future for years to come. I just love, love, love this program. At the very beginning, you told us where soldiers need to go in order to perhaps participate. It was life something. Well, <laughs> I have it's, a, memory. <laughs> it's, it's Soldiers for Life program is, is really the, uh, the ongoing structural support uh, that's available on base to help soldiers who are transitioning. And I'll provide you with the uh, retired Command Sergeant Major Waller's contact information so that you can share that with any of our uh, listeners that are soldiers that have interest. Now, in the same fashion, we're looking at uh, taking veterans um, potentially uh, up to four years from their uh, date of service uh, and potentially finding ways for them to participate if they're you know, looking for that career change or they think that they're this may suit them better in their uh, in their seek to, to find a really solid career for themselves. So um, we've got a handful of vets that have come through the program as well. So, uh, you know, we're just looking for ways to open up this program to as many people as possible because A, we need them and then to goes back to our service of those who have served us. How many people in a class? Um, we. Our first couple of cohorts were less than 10, just uh, nine and eight. Uh, our current cohort's 17. So we've, we're building up volume in that. 
I would say that we're going to target 15 soldiers on average for each cohort going forward. And that's going to give us the right mix of volume plus allow us to maintain the educational experience. So, so and I understand you guys have a graduating class coming up soon. Yeah, we're looking, and that's a really special day. It's, uh, it's really gratifying for me and seeing the smiles on the soldiers' faces because not only are we going to recognize them and award them with the certificate showing their certifications, um, but also at that same time, we ask them to drive to the college with a pickup or something like that because what we do is we take a forklift and load into the back of their pickup truck pallet, including their Rotunda Ford toolkit. And it seems like it's Christmas uh, um, whenever we give those toolkits out because there is that uh, sense of accomplishment that the soldier feels. And then they're receiving a really cool toolkit because this uh, toolkit uh, uh, was actually designed by Ford engineers for those technicians starting in the business. And uh, all the hand tools uh, feature Ford ovals, um, it's decidedly Ford, so you know we're obviously selfish in this case. We want the the soldier to be uh, very interested in Ford products, um, hence giving them Ford certifications. But better a way to kind of build them into the brand, but to equip them with Ford tools, so uh, the soldiers love them. So as I said, just it's like Christmas every time we do one of these events. Uh, we call it a toolbox ceremony. Um, so it's 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 fun. We enjoy that. I love it. Well, is there anything um, that you're like, why hasn't Laura asked me this yet? It's the most important question. No, I think you've, you've got it all. I mean, it's, it's been fun to kind of share with you a little bit about what we've been doing. Um, you know, we're looking for as many good men and women out there, whether you're soldiers or not, there's opportunities in this trade. Uh, there's a lot of different pathways into uh, the automotive business. It is interesting to know that especially with high schools and, and such, there's been such a focus on four-year degree programs out there. Um, but for everybody, that doesn't necessarily make sense. And you think about the stories of a massive student debt load and uh, graduates of four-year degree programs with those similar debt levels only to be underemployed into the marketplace. But, uh, you know, when it comes down to the trade, we're trying to kind of have people rethink the, the space of the automotive technician because a lot of people think about it as kind of that mechanic or geez, they've been even referred to as grease monkeys for, for that matter. Well, if you think about today's modern era of vehicles and all the computers and networking and high-tech systems, these men and women have to be really, really capable, competent. It's a high-tech type of position. So the more we can kind of build that awareness across that, and then if you think about coming into the, the trade, we can offer you a tr uh, an opportunity to make 50, 60, 70, $80,000, depending on your amount of work and your determination um, in a somewhat recession-proof environment. So, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of folks that have made uh, a good living for them and their families, and we want to share that with as many people as possible. So we appreciate the opportunity to visit with you today. Yeah, 50 to 80,000. Wow, that's awesome. That is yeah. totally awesome. Well, I so appreciate your time today and I love this program and I can't wait for our listeners to hear about it.
Thanks, Laura. We appreciate you. Thank you again to Jonathan Cuff. Make sure to subscribe to Driving in Heels to hear more manufacturer interviews every week. When we return, new research from the AAA Foundation shows driving habits have changed during and after the pandemic. That's next on Driving in Heels. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. This is a message for anyone with high LDLC or bad cholesterol who has had or is at risk of having a cardiovascular adverse event. Merck is studying an investigational medication to see whether it may help lower the risk of future cardiovascular adverse events. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death worldwide. And in the United States alone, there are over 73 million people living with high LDLC. To learn about whether you may qualify, visit CoralReefStudies.com now. Again, that is C-O-R-A-L-R-E-E-F-S-T-U-D-I-E-S dot com. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. This is Driving in Heels with Laura Reynolds. Each week, Laura talks with auto manufacturers to keep you in the know about the latest and greatest in the cars, trucks, and SUVs you love to drive. Here's more Driving in Heels with Laura Reynolds. I'm Laura Reynolds, and you're listening to Driving in Heels. Traffic Research Group Leader, AAA Foundation, Dr. Bill Ori and Brian Teff give us some eye-opening stats from their research. This is one of those things that you know, you guys have worked what years on and finally your baby is here and you get to tell us about it. (laughs) So um, tell us some of the research that you have found out about traffic uh, situations um, due to COVID. As we all know, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a profound impact on on, um, how much Americans travel, um, both in terms of things like going to the office. Um, you see that um, Bill is in the office. Andy and I are both appear to be, I'm at home right now. I believe Andy is well. And um, it's also had an impact on how we, how we um, travel for leisure, how we do things like shop for groceries. I've been having my groceries delivered a lot more than, than I used to. Um, so the, these are, these are things that big big picture we know from a variety of sources. What we wanted to, to learn with our study was 
not just what is the impact in aggregate of the COVID-19 pandemic on travel in the United States, but what has been the, the impact on who is traveling and when and where and why, because the, these are all pieces of the puzzle that help us to understand the relationship between travel and travel among the American public, the COVID-19 pandemic and traffic safety, as we've unfortunately seen that although the amount we're traveling has, has decreased substantially since the onset of the pandemic, we've actually seen motor vehicle traffic fatalities moving in the wrong direction. The data from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration shows that, that fatalities were actually up about 7% last year in 2020 relative to the previous year, taking us back to our worst year since I believe 2007 in terms of the numbers of of people killed needlessly on our roads. And we thought that by, by conducting more research into who was, who was doing the driving out there and when and where and under what circumstances that can help us to, that can help us to understand a little better what's, what's going on and what are the issues that we really need to be attentive to. Well, Brian, let's break down two of the th uh, two of the things that you just said. Um, first of all, you said um, when COVID started, the traffic patterns—I mean—they decreased substantially. So, what kind of um, percentage are we looking at here? Because I remember, like, Houston is a horrible place for traffic, but it was like there was no one on the roads. So, what percentage are we looking at with that? So nationwide, it look—it looks like the the number of the number of people ma making any any trips doing any traveling on our roads had decreased by about, depending on the measure, 42 to 46 percent at the early stages of the pandemic when the, when the stay at home orders and the shelter in place orders were were um, put into effect. And we were also seeing some, quite frankly, terrifying news um, as the pandemic ravaged a couple of the states in the upper northeast early on. Um, after the after um, we we sort of settled into um, I don't want to call it the new normal, but um, after we after the early months of the pandemic, we saw travel rebound somewhat. But for the remainder for the remainder of the year, basically from from June on, we saw travel was still down about 20% relative to the same time the previous year, which is still a very substantial amount, even though it was a significant rebound. Well, one of the things that shocked me is when you said fatalities are up 7%, even though there are fewer drivers on the road. That just seems counterintuitive. If you have less cars, you should have less fatalities. What do you attribute to that? Um, we... we we still admittedly don't have all the answers to that question, but um, a few, a few, um, a few facts that I think we can glean from our research in conjunction with, with that of others. We saw substantially larger decreases in travel due to commuting and business travel than other sources of travel. And although, although um, commuting and, and traveling on business represent a substantial amount of all of the travel that goes on in the United States, those tend to be lower, lower than average risk trips in terms of, of one's risk of, of dying on the road. So we, we saw that, that um, 
commuting and I'll just focus on the second half of 2020 because that's when we really saw fatalities take off. In the second half of 2020, we saw that commuting was down about 26% relative to the same period previous year, whereas all other travel and we, our data were were not quite granular enough to break out travel for doctor's appointments, travel to the grocery store, travel for social reasons, but just as a, as a group, all other travel except commuting was down by, by 16%. So that, that, that's, that's not nothing, but it's a much smaller decrease than we saw in commuting. So the, the trips that in aggregate tend to be some of the higher risk trips had also decreased less. And another thing that we saw is that the, the largest reduction in travel was actually among, among the, the middle-aged drivers who um, statistically tend to be the safest drivers, where, whereas the reductions were the smallest among among the young, whether whether that's teenagers or young adults, and we know that they happen to be the highest risk population. Breaking down a little bit further, we actually saw that that travel for work was down the most among among the young, whether that's because they were out of work or whether that's because they were working from home, whereas their non-work related travel hardly changed at all. So the the, the the youngest drivers out there who happen to be the the highest risk population on our roads that uh, aside aside from their their traveling to work in person less their travel really didn't change very much so uh, so i think the important point here is the mix of the people on the roads and what they're doing changed in re in reasons that that from a safety standpoint have have not been good <laughs> Wow, that's interesting. So it's uh, because more inexperienced drivers were actually on the roads during those times that contributed to higher fatalities? Um, inexperience is almost certainly a role in that, especially among the, the youngest of the young drivers. But we, we, know, we know from, from ma um, many other studies by, by us as well as by others that even beyond the inexperienced drivers, even drivers in the in their later teens, early twenties, they still have substantially higher risks of of crashing and of being involved in severe crashes than drivers in say their thirties or forties or fifties. Yeah. And, and I, I step in too, uh, uh, Laura, just to say, you know, in some cases, you know, Brian can speak to this data far better than I can, but a lot of the times we're talking about the magnitude of the decreases, not necessarily absolute numbers. And so while there, there's, you know, the, the, the magnitude of the decrease in these younger population was smaller than that observed in the middle age range. And so we're also kind of looking, you know, you got to think about the data in terms of how many people are on the road, but also just in terms of how different that was from normal driving circumstances. Absolutely. Do you think um, any of this is attributed to the fact that maybe those younger drivers were like more, you know, essential workers, you know, they worked in fast food, they work in grocery stores, you know, they, they were the ones that had to go to work no matter what. Yeah, I, I mean, I sp think, uh, you know, our data is granular enough to really uh, say for certain, but when you think about this population, yeah, these are the sorts of jobs that, you know, those age groups are particularly uh, prominent in. And so I think we all speak from experience when we were, 
out and about during the pandemic, you know, going to those essential places, grocery stores, gas stations, things like that. Those, you know, oftentimes are the sorts of workers that uh, are, are out there. So how did you conduct this study? I mean, did you go across different age groups or how did you get the information? So, so um, this is a study that um, predates the COVID-19 pandemic that we've been, we've been carrying on an ongoing basis for years to understand the travel of the American public. So for the survey, we call it the American Driving Survey. Um, that's, that's where we drew our data from for this particular study of the impact of COVID. In the American Driving Survey, we, we interview a representative sample of the American public ages 16 and older um, all, across the, all across the year. And for e- each person who we interview, we ask them to report detailed information about all the travel that they did, um, driving, walking, um, riding, et cetera, all the travel that they did on the day before the interview. And by, and by adding up and aggregating all the data that we get from all of our respondents interviewed over all different days of the year, it, it, it allows us to get a good picture of the, of the travel that's going on both on an annual basis and, and sort of changes within the year as we're, as we're seeing particularly in this context. So I live in Houston and I mean, you are not going to take away our trucks and our cars and we're, you know, we're not known for public transportation here in Houston. So I'm wondering, did public transportation see the same kind of decrease, you know, during COVID? Uh, um, actually, actually bigger. Um, we, um, our data being from a nationally representative survey of the entire U.S. population, and focused mainly on driving. We we don't have the data to be able to speak to the situation in Houston or in New York City or in Washington D.C. But in aggregate, we saw that the the reduction in use of transit as well as other shared modes of transport like taxi or rideshare, Uber, Lyft, they decreased considerably more than the aggregate numbers or decreases in driving in in people's personal cars. And, And they also rebounded considerably less during the second half of 2020 than um, than did um, driving or travel in aggregate. For example, the, the number of the number of people that reported any travel at all by by transit, taxi, or rideshare decreased by by a very large amount in the during the initial months of the pandemic. And even though it rebounded somewhat in the second half of the year, it still stayed below half of the previous year levels. So how have our habits changed um, from the start of the survey to what you were talking about towards the end of 2020? Um, As we as we um, look over the course of the data, as well as forward to the present, um, something that we really want to be able to speak to better, but we're just not quite there yet, is under understanding what is a temporary impact of the pandemic that that's going to go away, and what it what is a structural change that the pandemic e- um, either accelerated or revealed that that was already in progress. So, f- for for example, we know we know that. Um, 
commuting was down more than non-commuting and travel in aggregate um, during the pandemic. A, a real question on our minds is whether um, whether in the hopefully not too distant future when the pandemic is behind us, will commuting look like it did back in 2019 when, when COVID-19 wasn't in our vocabulary yet? Or, or will it remain much like it did much like it did in the second half of last year, or perhaps most likely somewhere in the middle. For example, I know that I know that a lot of a lot of businesses will be moving toward some sort of quote unquote hybrid work where people who used to be in the office five days a week might be in the office two or three days a week in the future. And we, we don't really know um, what that mean, what that may mean for travel. Um, I, I, used to always shop for my for my own groceries i never thought of myself as as somebody who would who would sit on my sofa and and click an app to request that somebody bring me my groceries but i um i was quite frankly nervous about going to the grocery store during the height of the pandemic so i started doing that and i've i found that it's actually quite convenient i'm i'm going to the grocery store more than i was last april but i I don't know if I'm likely to return to going to the grocery store as often as I used to. There's a lot that we still need to learn. Brian, I'm going to tell you right now, they deliver liquor too. (laughs) (laughs) Just to underscore uh, something that Brian was saying too, you know, I, I think even though there's still a lot of unknown questions or unanswered questions about, you know, the future of travel, you know, I think one thing that we're, trying to at least convey to people like whether they're continuing to travel um, during the pandemic or they're beginning to emerge from the pandemic and starting to travel more often, you know, really trying to underscore that everyone, you know, be safe and attentive drivers and really pay attention and be mindful of this, um, you know, this, uh, you know, new world we're in and uh, also be mindful of the fact that, yeah, if you haven't driven for a while, uh, you may be taking a bit easy uh, at, at the start, you know, trying to get back in the flow of things because yeah, we don't know how risk is going to change in the future, but we certainly don't want, uh, you know, the situation to become exacerbated with some of the trends we've been observing during the pandemic. Well, as researchers, I mean, this must be a goldmine for you guys. Um, the fact that you can see what used to be normal in 2019, then you've got COVID and now you're seeing recovery. So, I mean, you guys must be like excited and geeking out over this. Um, I, I, I have to say, um, I'm never excited when I, when I see the toll that the pandemic has taken on our society and the unfortunate consequences that we're seeing on, on our roads. As a, as a researcher, though, it really creates the imperative for us to dig into those data to understand um, what went on this past year to figure out, looking forward, how we can do better. Well, Dr. Bill, you started hitting upon some of the things that we can do to be safer um, while we're out there and still, you know, traffic recovery period here going on. So um, can you talk a little bit more about those things that we can do to keep those numbers going down instead of back up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about, you know, the driving responsibility, you know, paying attention to the road, um, being attentive. Uh, being respectful of other motorists, you know, I think those are all elements from a, from a broader level, but, you know, we're, you know, we just want people to, yeah, uh, to be mindful of their speed. You know, I think speeding was one of the behaviors that other organizations have, have really highlighted as being 
a problem during the pandemic, uh, aggressive driving, um, intoxication, I think was one that other organizations again have, have touted as a possible uh, causal factor. And so seatbelt use, all of these things, you know, are, you know, are, they're very basic, they're fundamental aspects of driving, but we just want people to remember uh, and engage in those uh, appropriate behaviors. Yeah, that was going to be my next question for you. I mean, what about seatbelt usage? Um, have you been able to tell if that's gone down as well? Uh, it's not in the current data. Uh, we, we don't really have a, a you know visibility on kind of the in-cab behaviors of motorists. We do have some other data sources that we're, we're trying to explore, again, to, to get a little bit closer to some of the, the behavioral aspects of individuals as opposed to just these general travel patterns. But, you know, as, as we know, just from, from other data, you know, uh, seatbelt compliance is, you know, it's good in some areas and, and not as good in others. But, you know, this is actually one of the, you know, the single easiest things you can do to reduce the likelihood of, uh, you know, being involved in a fatal crash or sorry, of, of being uh, the, the fatal, um, you know, person or the person that, you know, succumbs to injuries in, in, in the event of a crash. And so seatbelts can save lives and we really just encourage people to, to use them, whether you're in a pandemic or not, it's just a good practice. Well, okay, guys, I'm asking you to get out your crystal ball here. When do you think traffic is gonna be almost more normal? You know what I'm saying? Is that we're still seeing a decrease in people traveling, but when do you think it might be closer to normal? This is a, a terrific question, Laura, and I think if we knew the answer to that, uh, you know, we'd be uh, probably doing other things uh, <laughs> ourselves. Uh, but, you know, I think as, as Brian alluded to uh, earlier, uh, you know, I think we're starting to see uh, businesses um, rethinking uh, the pattern. You know, a lot of them have marked the fourth quarter of this year as sort of the beginning of a return to normal. And so I think, you know, if we kind of start to, look beyond that. I mean, there's definitely going to be sort of some transition period in the, mid, in the midst. But when you look at maybe by the end of the year into next year, we might start to see some stabilization in pattern travels. You know, obviously, you know, variants of COVID and things, uh, they might uh, have further impacts in which we'll have to reassess. But uh, but yeah, I think we'll, we'll start to see some things shake up, uh, you know, in the fourth quarter and beyond. Is it is it only me, but I, I feel like I'm being hit by more and more advertising with people saying, hey, you know, do a family road trip, get back to a family road trip, you know, with traveling. Have you guys noticed that as well? I guess, uh, yeah, anecdotally, I mean, I think you know, all, all industries, you know, um, you know, across the board are really trying to find their path back towards normal, uh, you know, travel being one of them, you know, and I think, you uh, you know, it's just uh, time will tell how, how these things track, uh, both in terms of, you know, uh, people's willingness and uh, overall safety. Uh, but yeah, again, it's, uh, uh, I think, you know, you, you, if you're seeing that already, Laura, in some corners, I think you're just going to start to see it, you know, in other uh, aspects of life as well. Yeah, I see a lot. Um, I talked to uh, uh, the uh, auto manufacturers, and it seems like we're hearing more about vehicles that, hey, you can take this on your kayak trip, or hey, you can take off-roading, you know, things like that with the vehicles that they're they're talking about right now. So I feel like it's almost um, like they're saying it's okay to be out again. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, 
um, you know, the, the marketing uh, brains uh, at all of these OEMs and, and other organizations. Yeah, I mean, part of their job is to look at really what's going on in the world and how can you message that to potential consumers. And yeah, I think just the, you know, the whole idea of getting out in nature with you know, appropriate social distancing, whether they're saying that or not is another thing. But yeah, I, I, I think it's, a, you know, it's, it's an interesting component that's kind of outside of our world here in traffic safety, but uh, certainly it uh, relates to people's travel habits and, and so on. So how can we take this research and this report that you guys have done and get this into the hands of, you know, I don't know if it's the governor or if it's state troopers or so that we can knock down those fatality numbers? Well, certainly uh, chatting with people like yourself, Laura, is, is part of our how we get the message out. Uh, you know, our, our foundations, you know, a 501c3 charitable organization. So all of our results are freely available. We, we do our best to promote and get the message out to various stakeholders. Uh, and yeah, just our, it's just our hope that our data, when you look at it in conjunction with the data being gathered by others, uh, other organizations, uh, really helps to drive the point home uh, when it's uh, certainly when it comes to a safety message. Yeah, I'd also add too, I'm sorry. Uh, I'd also add too that, you know, the AAA organization, whether it's AAA national or the clubs themselves, they do a terrific job of getting out there um, and, and talking to stakeholders, uh, you know, whether it's in the, the government areas or their membership, um, they're really great at uh, sending these messages out. And so that's a, a certainly a vehicle that the AAA Foundation uh, for Traffic Safety has relied upon in the, fa- uh, in the past to, to get our, our, the results of our studies out there in the hands of people that can make a difference. Yeah, I think um, you would definitely want this information. I'm going to refer back since I'm in Houston to Houston Transtar, where they have, you know, all of the emergency services in one room and they have all of the um, reporters and all that in, in one room where they can see what's happening on the roadways. I think they would be really interested in that to see how they can help, how it can enhance or help their job. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you look across the board, whether it's you know, local or uh, state or, or national level, there's so many stakeholders and yeah, access to the information they need is critical. And so that's a, that's a great model. And I hope it's uh, being employed in other states and other regions as well. So if I'm listening right now and I'm like, man, I want to read that report. Where do I go? <laughs> well, we'll send them right to our uh, uh, website. Everything is posted there. Uh, they'll find a, a whole variety of reports. It's AAA Foundations. That's aafoundation.org. And uh, we're, we're always putting up new reports, uh, They uh, sometimes on a monthly basis, uh, and it's across the board. It's not just travel patterns and COVID. It's the emerging technology. It's vulnerable road users. It's roadway systems and drivers. Uh, many, many things, uh, hopefully of interest to anybody that's uh, uh, interested in uh, safety and uh, transportation. Okay, so aaafoundation.org in order to see those reports. So go ahead, tease us. We won't tell anyone. What are you working on next? Uh, well, probably too much to mention, Laura, but we we have quite a few things going on in the area of emerging technology. So we've been doing a lot of recent research looking at people's understanding of and interactions with new technology. So, you know, advanced vehicle automation, uh, you know, we're, we're continuing to, uh, you know, get uh, uh, information about people's perceptions and attitudes and uh, risky driving behaviors. 
Uh, and I think we're uh, we're going to put a COVID spin on that as well uh, in the in the coming months. Uh, but yeah, we're we're always uh, up to uh, up to something. And uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's it's hard to pick just one because you know as researchers, you know we 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 love everything we do. Uh, and uh, but uh, you know Brian might have a, a different opinion as to what to showcase. But uh, those are those are the few that I would highlight. That's awesome, Brian. What do you think? I, I I completely agree with with everything Bill said. Um, the, the only only other thing I wanted to highlight on your on our website, you can also find a number a number of studies and resources related to the critically important issue of driver fatigue and drowsiness. We're also working on a, a neat new study in that area right now, looking at the effectiveness of some countermeasures to to address dress driver fatigue and drowsiness, whether that's to prevent a, a fatigue driver from getting behind the wheel in the first place or to or to encourage them to pull off the road and take a nap or to help them to get where they're going safely. And we think that may be an especially important important problem that we need to talk about more in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic as well. Just just um, a couple months ago, the American um, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, um, released a survey showing that a large proportion of the American public are sleeping less and sleeping worse than they used to because of the pandemic, whether that's because of the stress associated with their job or worried about the pandemic itself or other factors. And we we know that not, not getting enough sleep before you get behind the wheel is, is bad news. It it increases your, your risk of causing a crash substantially. If um, for somebody that gets less than less than four or five hours of sleep, we find that to be on par with, or in some cases, even worse than driving while intoxicated by alcohol. It's something you don't see much in our crash statistics, just because we're not really good at measuring it. But we know that's a, that's a big problem that we can't afford to lose focus on. Well, it sounds like you guys are about to get a lot of blisters while you're keyboarding <laughs> with these reports. <laughs> Thank you again to Dr. Bill Ori and Brian Teff for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to Driving in Heels to hear more manufacturer interviews. Every week, I talk directly to the manufacturers to get you the latest information about vehicles you're interested in. No opinions, just straight facts from the automakers themselves. I'm your host, Laura Reynolds, and that wraps up this week's Driving in Heels. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Driving in Heels. There'll be more next week when Laura Reynolds talks directly to the manufacturers about the cars you love and the cars you want to know more about on Driving in Heels. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.